Good morning, everybody. Welcome to those who are joining us live stream or however you're listening to us. Thank you for making us part of your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is incredibly uncertain times, and it doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We are entering uncharted waters. But one thing we do know is that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, however we're listening this morning or throughout the week, may we be inspired and reminded that victory rests with you, that you are completely and totally in control. Open our eyes that we might see you more clearly. Open our minds that we might understand you more fully. And open our hearts and our hands that we might respond in a way that brings you glory. God, I pray that my words would fall down and that your words would be lifted up, impacting us wherever we are, however we're listening, so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Five years ago was one of the most difficult seasons of my life. My wife, Jenna, came home early from work with this look of utter shock and disbelief. After being recruited by a large construction company, a setback in the economy meant that the new girl lost her job. That very same month, my tenant that we had in Calgary was a little bit late paying his bills. And so after contacting him, he said, I've decided I don't want to pay rent anymore. So I had to take him to court to eventually have him removed. His going away present to me was $12,000 of damages. Appliances were ruined, holes in wall, flooring destroyed. On top of that, my wife and I had just learned we were expecting our second child. I suppose in the midst of all that had taken place, at least we didn't have to pay for childcare with Jenna at home. At that time, I was serving in a small rural church about 45 minutes west of the city, and I don't know if you know how much pastors make, but it's not enough to cover two mortgages, a mat leave, and $12,000 of damages. I was in bad shape. I couldn't sleep at night. I was in my office, and I would just stare off into the distance. I didn't know what was going to happen. Some of you might be feeling in a very similar place right now. There's this feeling of complete and total helplessness. You might have money saved up, but how long is that going to last for? We're a smart and savvy group of people, but our intelligence can't help with what's taking place. As great as technology is, it doesn't make our problems go away. We have friends and family, but they can't visit us. The best we can do is see them online. When it feels like your world is crashing around you, what are you supposed to do? If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible where you live, you can download one on your smartphone or your tablet at bible.com slash app. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and Joshua is one of the early books of the Bible, one of the, uh, right after the book of Deuteronomy. While you open your Bibles, I usually like to give an idea of what's taking place, the context that's happening right now in the book of Joshua. But rather than looking at the first five chapters to lead us up to this point, I want to actually go 40 years backwards. The Israelites have recently crossed the Red Sea and watched the Egyptian army drown as the walls of water from the Red Sea come tumbling down upon them. From Egypt, they've traveled to Mount Sinai where God has given them the Ten Commandments. They spend a little bit of time there and then make a three-day journey up to Kadesh, just south of the promised land of Canaan. Shortly after their arrival, Moses calls 12 leaders of the Israelites, one from each tribe, and sends them into Canaan. And this is what we read in Numbers chapter 13. See what the land is like. 
and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. About six weeks later, the scouts return, and you know what they said? Moses, it's even better than you could have possibly imagined. There was so much fruit, it took two of us to carry a branch back to you. The land is truly overflowing with milk and honey. But we have a problem. The people there are huge. We think they're the descendants of angels. We look like grasshoppers to their eyes. Not only that, but they live in large and fortified cities and we have no hope of ever beating them. Word of this spy mission came back to the men and the women and they started to complain and grumble against Moses. We read this in chapter 14 of Numbers. If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taking this plunder. Wouldn't it have been better if we just stayed in Egypt? Sounds a little bit familiar, right? It's over. It's hopeless. No amount of resources are going to get us past this hurdle. Our friends and family surrounding us, we all know we're going to lose. We're smart, we're savvy, but the obstacle's too big. There is nothing at our disposal that is going to make this go away. Moses sent 12 men to check out the land. 10 of them came back with a fairly negative report. But two men didn't. Joshua and Caleb stood before the entire assembly of Israel in Numbers chapter 14 and say this, the land we explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. And do you know how the Israelites responded? With anger and with venom. Stone them. They're traitors. They should die. What point is it to go into this promised land if we're only going to be killed by the tip of a spear? We read God's words to Moses in verse 11. How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? It's in the second half of Numbers chapter 14 that God says, all the Israelite men over the age of 20 will die here in the desert. They will wander for 40 years and then I will bring their descendants into the promised land. Joshua is trying to help us understand. He's trying to help the Israelites understand. This isn't about numbers. This isn't about size. This isn't about family or friends or savvy or smarts or resources or what you have at your disposal. This is a stark reminder. Victory belongs to the Lord. 40 years have passed. The Israelites are no longer wandering in the desert. They're standing on the west side of the Jordan. Their feet in the promised land. They have dedicated themselves to God and believe victory belongs to the Lord and the fortress of Jericho stands before them. This is Joshua 6, verses one to five. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out, no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. 
have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and people will go up, every man straight in. The time of preparation is over. The time for battle has begun. But before them stands the mighty fortress of Jericho. Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the world. People believe that even before the time that the Israelites marched up to them, it's at least 2,000 years old, probably close to 5,000. Surrounded by fertile land in a warm climate, they had access to water. It was a pillar of strength for the community. The wall around the city was constructed in about 3000 BC and stood 30 feet high and 12 feet thick. The outer wall was built about a thousand years after that. It was impressive in its own right at about six feet thick and many of the residents lived in between the two walls. And yet with this incredible history, the residents of Jericho still quaked in fear as this nomadic people came marching up towards them. Let me share something fascinating about this before we see what happens next. In the ancient world, many people believed that gods were territorial. So one nation might believe in the God of fertility and have lots of children. Other people, other nations might believe in the God of the harvest and have great crops. But once you left your territory, your God lost his power. He might not be completely powerless, but he's certainly not as powerful as he was. As Israel marches towards Jericho, God is showing his might. Not only has God shown himself greater than the gods of the Egyptians, he's also shown himself stronger than the gods of Canaan. This holds incredible significance in its own right, but something else is taking place. The Egyptians actually worshiped a sun god named Ra. You wanna take a guess who the people of Jericho worshiped? The word Jericho sounds like the Hebrew word moon and has led many people to believe that Jericho was the center of moon worship. In conquering a great nation like Egypt and a great fortress like Canaan, God is showing not only do borders hold no constraints, but he is greater than the sun God and the moon God. He is the God of all creation. Nothing will stop him from accomplishing his will. Victory belongs to the Lord. It's the moment we've been waiting for. Here at Ellerslie over the last few weeks, we've been chomping at the bit. When is the conquest gonna begin? For the Israelites, it's been 40 years in the making. They've crossed the Jordan River. They've set up their memorial stones. The men have given themselves over to God. Let the conquest begin. So Joshua looks over his army, about 40,000 of them. And I would imagine there would be emotions all over the map. Some are fearful, some are excited, some are nervous, some just want to get going. And he looks at his army commanders and he says to them, here's the battle plan. We are going to march around the city of Jericho. And I can almost imagine somebody kind of clamoring their shields together and saying, and then what? And Joshua says, and then we're coming back to camp. seems a little anticlimactic, but away they go. Verses eight to 11. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew their trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. 
But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices and do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. I really like what the pastor and commentator Kent Hughes says about this passage. The uniform witness of military history is that the foe is conquered by force. City walls are cleared by bombardment. Then they are scaled by ladder and rope. Gates are destroyed by battering rams. Troops are taken by the sword. Cities do not fall before mystics making bad music on ram's horns. The only way I'm opening that gate is if a bunch of grade sixes are playing their recorder because we would just want that to end. Joshua 12 and 14. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. This is a pretty unusual battle plan. And I wonder, what were the Israelites themselves thinking? Are the Israelites marching in anticipation of what they know is going to happen, or are they doing a little bit of grumbling or a bit of both? Is the army of Jericho standing on the walls, laughing and mocking the people of Israel at this bizarre procession, or do they quake at the sound of the ram's horn? I know I just made the joke about grade sixes playing recorders, but the sound of a ram's horn is actually quite impressive. There's an imposing sound to what's taking place. The sound that feels like something epic is going to happen. It's difficult to say exactly how big the city of Jericho is, but certainly don't think a modern city like Edmonton. It would be much more realistic to think about the size of a community, or if you have a farming background, about 40 acres. With armed men walking around that type of distance, it would take about half an hour. And then we arrive at the big moment. Joshua chapter 6, 15 to 21. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord your God has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord their God. On only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are spared with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and all the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. 
I have three kids, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. Each of them have their own Bible, and each of those Bibles are different. And each of those Bibles have the story of the fall of Jericho. But you know what I find a little bit strange? They certainly rejoice in this big idea that victory belongs to the Lord. But none of my three kids' children Bibles talk about how they went in and slaughtered all the men, women, and children. Another strange thing, when I talk to my friends about Jesus, one of the first things they say is, Dave, what about all the killing? If your God is so loving, then why does he completely wipe out an entire nation and entire groups of people? Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Allow me to take off my preaching hat and set it to the side and I'll put on a teaching hat and we'll come back to, this, uh, to the Joshua 6 in just a moment. But the first thing I wanna do when talking about all that killing is that the enemies were removed from the land. You see, whenever we get into an argument with somebody, whether it's a spouse or a coworker or a friend, it doesn't matter. The combination of our tone of voice along with the disagreement will escalate that argument. For example, if somebody said to me, wow, Dave, you're really starting to lose your hair. And I dug in and I said, I am not losing my hair. I choose to shave my head. They might turn around and say, look at this picture on YouTube. Your head is glowing. No one feels good after that interaction. But if someone makes fun of me for losing my hair and I make a bad joke about how I just want to look more angelic on the stage, we both laugh and we move on. It's the same thing when we tackle difficult conversations. If we get our back up against the wall and we try to defend God with these well-thought-out arguments, people are just going to look at us and laugh and go, whatever, man, I don't even want to talk about it. But if you look at your friend and you just own it and say, you're right. There are parts of the scripture, like the ones you're referring to, where God says, kill everybody. Man, woman, child, and all living things. They're probably going to be open up to it and say, well, then why do you still believe that? Then you can say something like, it's a whole lot less about killing people and more about driving people out of the land. Speaking about the conquest of Canaan in Deuteronomy chapter 11, Moses tells the people, the Lord will drive out these nations before you and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. If you remember what I said at the beginning of my sermon about the tenants who destroyed my house, use that tenant as an analogy. These tenants, these Canaanites have ruined the land. They have been unfaithful. They have not done what has been asked for them. And so now the landlord is coming and asking them to leave. Which leads us to our second point. They've done detestable practices. God is not some evil dictator like the guy with the bad mustache from Nazi Germany. The Canaanites are terrible people. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy 18. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out the nations before you. 
He's not exactly kicking out Mr. Rogers. This leads us to the reason the Canaanites are being driven out. It's a protection from idolatry. It's a protection to help the Israelites not worship the gods of the Canaanites. It's a protection for the Israelites not to abandon the God who has welcomed and walked them through the desert. Once again, we go back to the book of Deuteronomy and Moses is telling the Israelites why this is so important. This time in chapter seven, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chose you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. See, God is a lot more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. God's a lot more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. Of course, it would be easier if the Israelites just said, you know what, just stick around. We'll take the nice places. You take the other places, but hey, we can intermarry if we want. Fighting is hard. The Canaanites have a lot of wealth that the Israelites want. And wow, that's a really good looking girl over there. Maybe she'll marry my kid. It's not about their comfort or about what they think it's best. It's about their character. And God wants to set them apart, to be holy, a people that the rest of the world can look at and say, those are the Israelites. They worship a great and mighty and powerful God and their lives are wonderfully different. Last thing, and we'll go back to the text. God has given them time to repent. I think this often gets overlooked and is of great importance. I know the last three comments were all Deuteronomy. This one is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you remember what happened to Rahab and the spies way back in chapter 2? It was a couple of weeks ago, so I totally get if you don't remember. But in chapter two, verse 10, this is what Rahab says. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. The people from Jericho knew what happened 40 years ago. The people from Jericho standing on the walls, watching the Israelites walk around them, watched that happen for six days, giving them plenty of time to change their mind. Now you might be watching the live stream or listening to the podcast and thinking, come on, Dave, they'll never repent. But they do. Rahab did. Later on in Joshua, we'll see that the Gibeonites do. And there's this prophet at the end of the Old Testament, a man by the name of Jonah, who goes to a city he wants nothing to do with. And he tells them, repent or destruction will come. And that entire city repents from that message. Okay, teaching hat off. (laughs) Back to the text. Picking up in verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house. 
and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought her and her entire family and put them in place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. The Israelites have followed God's instruction to near perfection. God says to march silently around the city. They march silently around the city. God says to yell when the ram horns blow after the seventh time on the seventh day and they scream with all their might. The spies who promised to keep Rahab and her family safe go into Jericho and bring her out and keep them safe and welcome them into the land. Everyone outside of Rahab's family was killed. If you take another look at verse 20, you'll see how simple God made this for the people. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall fell flat so that every man might charge in and take the city. The wall didn't even become a pile of rubble. It fell flat as though a drawbridge was being lowered so the army might rush in and do what needs to be done. After this time of complete destruction, verse 26, Joshua pronounced the solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is any man who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. And the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. This is a pretty amazing story of God fighting for his people. And it continually reminds us that victory belongs to the Lord. But what exactly does it mean for us? I appreciate the points of application Erwin Lutzer shares in his book, Overcoming the Grasshopper Complex, and there's three of them. This is the first, we march patiently. If you go back and reread verses six to 14, you'll notice something interesting. Joshua never tells the army how long they're going to march for. And like the Israelites, we are in unprecedented times. Never before in our lifetime have we seen a pandemic like the coronavirus. And wait for it. Nobody knows how long it will last. We know it's going to end. We know one day life will come back relatively to normal. We know one day this church building will be filled again. We know one day we'll go back to schools and our work. We know one day we'll go back to our hobbies. But we don't know when. And so we march patiently. We march unitedly. 40,000 soldiers walk around Jericho for six days without saying a word. 40,000 soldiers walk around Jericho on that seventh day six times without saying a word. And then 40,000 soldiers on the seventh day at the seventh lap when the ram's horn is blown, shout out in praise. And the walls come a-tumbling down. Being in quarantine is incredibly tough. But it has been so cool to watch how our church has come together. 
our phone team has called every single family unit in our church database. Over 800 families have been called. And a bit of a side note, if you haven't been called, please email us so we can make sure you're in our database and we would love to follow up with you. We have a prayer team that's been formed at this time. We have another team that is completely devoted to pastoral care and yet another team that is saying, if anybody needs groceries or medication picked up, we will happily do that for you. We march unitedly. And finally, we march triumphantly. As I read and reread this passage all week, I kept getting this idea stuck in my mind. The Israelites didn't know when the victory was going to come. The Israelites didn't know how the victory was going to come. They just knew victory was coming. This past week, Pastor Russ sent out an email to our staff team talking about the Stockdale Paradox, named after Admiral James Stockdale, who served in Vietnam. It was discovered that POWs who died during that time were the ones who took an overly optimistic perspective. These were the ones who said, you know what, we'll be home by Christmas. You know what? The diplomats back in the States, they're going to have this all figured out. By contrast, Admiral Stockdale looked at his men and said, you're going to be imprisoned for a long time. You're going to suffer. You're going to be tortured. It's going to be absolutely terrible. And don't even think of being home by Christmas. It's not going to happen. Deal with it. But what's interesting is the ones who took on the seemingly pessimistic perspective were the ones who survived to see their loved ones. That's the Stockdale paradox. People who acknowledge the challenge while believing in a positive outcomes are the ones who survive. We are in unprecedented times. We don't know when this virus is going to be over. We don't know how it's going to end. But one thing we do know, that victory rests with the Lord. So we march triumphantly. My friends, these are the moments that drive me to the pulpit. We march triumphantly because we know a greater Joshua is coming. If you think we're going to see Jesus in the gospels, you have the right person, but not the right place. In the book of Revelation, in chapters eight through 11, it tells us of seven trumpets that are blown. And at the sound of the 11th trumpet, Revelation eleven fifteen, there were loud voices in heaven, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple, we see the ark of his covenant and there come flashes of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and a great hailstorm over the next few chapters we see the fall of babylon and the destruction of the once mighty city before the apostle john gives us this mighty description of jesus in revelation chapter 19 verse 11 i seen heaven open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice he judges and makes war his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And by his word, our enemies are destroyed because we know that victory belongs to the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are completely and totally in control. And we ask forgiveness for when we have fallen short and taken our eyes off of you and looked to other things. And God, we pray that we might march patiently. We might march unitedly. And we might march triumphantly because we know that ultimate victory belongs to you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.